Welcome to the Next Level American Dream podcast, brought to you by Thompson Multifamily Group. Your hosts, Abigail and Sean, will discuss how you can take your American dream to the next level through real estate investing, business practices, and personal development. Join us as we share our experiences as a father-daughter duo who are trying to accomplish their goal of financial freedom. We hope you learn more about how to define and achieve your American dream. Here's another episode of Next Level American Dream. Hello, everyone. Before I talk to you about our episode today, just a quick reminder to subscribe if you haven't already, and please like, comment, rate, and review on your favorite platform. Today, Sean sat down with Tim Bratz. Tim is the CEO of Legacy Wealth Holdings and has been in the industry since 2009. He focused his career on wealth and personal development and recently created his own children's personal development books, Little Legacy Library. Today, he discusses his approach and experience in the multifamily field. And if you learned something from our episode today, please recommend this show to a friend and help us grow. For more information on our sponsor, Thompson Multifamily Group, visit thompsonmultifamilygroup.com to start taking your American dream to the next level through passive investing. Hi, Tim. Welcome to Next Level American Dream Podcast. Thanks for being on the show. I'm excited to be here, Sean. Thanks for having yeah. me, man. Yeah, thanks again for being on. Uh, I'm going to tell a little story about, you've already heard this once, but I'm going to tell a little story about how, how you impacted my decision to move into multifamily. You know, about three years ago, I was kind of struggling with my single family business and wanted to move into something more. I've always wanted income for my family and my, my, my business. And one door at a time with single family was just getting so frustrating. And I kept asking myself, there's got to be a better way to do this. And I started investigating multifamily and uh, heard Corey Peterson talk and tell his story. And then I heard your um, podcast with Greg Helbeck on Pave the Way podcast. And after that, I was hooked. You know, I, could, I completely committed myself to moving into the multifamily business. I started shifting my single family business over in that direction. So I wanted to just let you know, too, that that, that podcast for me was, was a, a, a critical sort of time for, for the, my decision-making time to go into multifamily. So I really appreciate you doing the podcast with him and, and convincing me to kind of move in that direction. So thanks for that. I love it, man. I love those kinds of stories. I appreciate you sharing that with me. It's kind of, again, the stuff that feeds the soul. You know, it makes me feel really good about what we got going on and inspires me to share my story a little bit more because I, I can promise you, if some kid from the suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio can do this, anybody can do this. So there's, there's a lot of wealth out there and there's plenty of it for all of us. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. And it was a really good, uh, it was a really good show for me. So well, tell people a little bit about uh, your journey in, in getting into multifamily, where you come from, what you, where you kind of, how you got kind of got here and, and what you guys have going on today. Yeah. Well, I'm a kid from Cleveland, Ohio, raised in the suburbs. My dad was a cop. My mom was a stay at home mom. So blue collar family. Um, one of four kids and was always, you know, motivated kind of by money. And so I had some entrepreneurial endeavors when I was in high school, I'd, I'd make mixed CDs and I'd cut people's hair. And uh, I started a painting company when I was in college and painted houses in the summertime. And, and then I interned for this and I was going through college 03 to 07. So this is when the market's going crazy. Everybody's making money in real estate. If you got a pulse, you can make money. And I interned for a big home builder at that time and realized like I wanted to be in, involved in real estate. So after I graduated from college, I moved out to New York City, just kind of on a whim and got a job. I thought you got involved in real estate by becoming a real estate agent. So I got my real estate license and ended up parking it with a commercial brokerage that did a lot of like retail leasing and investment sales and office leases and that kind of stuff. So I brokered a few leases over the course of about a year that I worked there and just realized I need to be owning real estate, not brokering real estate. I saw you know, as I was brokering these leases and do the math on how much residual income the landlord's going to create by brokering one lease and they're going to get paid on the next, you know, five, 10, 15 years on this lease term. And I'm like, well, what am I doing? I need to be doing that. Right. And so I realized it was, you know, I'm a 22 year old kid in New York city and couldn't afford anything there. So I decided to move down to Charleston, South Carolina. And when I moved down to Charleston, got involved in residential real estate. And so this is 2008, 2009 now, the market crashes. So everybody's running oh, from yeah. real estate. I just showed up to the party and everybody's you know, running out the back door. And I was <laughs> like, where's everybody going? 
Yeah. And so it was, it was cool because prices were so cheap. Everything was like fire sale. You could buy whatever you wanted on the MLS for, you know, a fraction of what it was selling for even 12 months prior. And that was cool. The problem was nobody's investing in real estate because everybody's saying run from real estate. Like the whole reason for the recession was real estate. The yeah. second thing was nobody's going to lend money to a punk 23 year old kid and nobody's going to lend money to somebody who's never done the deal before. Right. So I had right. three things working against me and I just kind of had to get creative on this thing. And I think that's kind of one of the, one of the attributes that's helped me really, you know, have the success that I've had is I, I had this resourcefulness kind of thing. When people say, Hey, I don't have the time. I don't have the money. I don't have the knowledge. I don't have the resources. If you're resourceful, you can find those resources. And I've always asked myself questions like, how can I get the money? How can I get the knowledge? How can I uh, take down this property? And that led me down like this trail of more questions and better answers and, and solutions to those questions. And so I, I ended up contacting my credit card company, got them to increase my credit limit. And I bought the house, my first house in 2000, it was April, 2009 on my credit card. And I physically flipped it myself. I did all the work. I painted it. I changed out carpet. I changed out light fixtures. It was a piece of crap and I just really put lipstick on a pig, but I was able to turn around and I sold it to one of the neighbors within 110 days and I made like 13 or $14,000 on that deal. So I was like, you know, everybody's running for real estate saying like nobody can make money in real estate. I just made money on my first deal right. ever. And so I did it again, did it again. Then I kind of got into wholesaling and then I started meeting people who were still buying properties and they had maybe access to cash, but didn't have any more bandwidth to take on more deals. And so I ended up, you know, finding my first private money lenders. They said, Hey, I'll bring the money, Tim, you do the work and then we'll, we'll split it up. And so started accumulating a small rental portfolio of single family houses. And, you know, at, at 25 years old, I had 10 units and I wasn't rich, but I was financially free. My, my monthly expenses exceeded my, I'm sorry, my monthly residual income exceeded my monthly expenses. And I thought I got this thing figured out. So then I start chasing some shiny objects. I start, oh, I can, I could go and start another business and do this. And then I sold some real estate to go start that other business. And, uh, and that other business just completely crumbled. And I was not a very good steward of capital back then. And so I found myself in, in August of 2012, completely broke. I had 80 bucks in my bank account. I had $25,000 in credit card debt. I had to borrow money to make the minimum payment on those credit cards. I had to borrow money to make my house payment. I was selling furniture in my house on Craigslist to try to just be able to put food on the table. And that was a pretty crappy position to be in, but I was able to get out of that because I sold my house, real estate saved me. And so I sold my house down here in Charleston and had to move back to Cleveland, Ohio, and moved back in with my parents at the age of 27. And so I was able to pay down a little bit of those credit cards, pay back some of the debts that I owed and just really press the reset button and start it again. And uh, reached out to some private money lenders that were interested in lending in, in real estate. They put up some cash and then I went to work, you know, and, and built up a portfolio over the next three years of around 140 units. And that's really when I started getting into multifamily. I bought my first multifamily around Christmas of 2012 and a little eight unit apartment building. Again, bottom of the barrel pricing. We got it for $30,000, an eight unit apartment. And, uh, wow. I put 50 grand into it. It needed a lot of work. It was bank owned yeah. and it was, you know, C minus kind of an area and, you know, put a bunch of tenants in there. And I, I realized like, I like these apartments. There's just more scale to it. There's more, uh, I can go to one house or one, one location instead of 10 locations. I can look at one roof instead of 10 roofs. I can look at one foundation instead of 10 foundations. I can meet my contractor at one spot instead of going 10 different locations. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's a lot more scale and easier to manage that type of stuff. And because of the economies of scale, you know, the, the expenses are, are far, far more reduced. So you can make a little bit more profit and a little bit more money on multifamily stuff. And that's what I really focused on for the next couple of years. So I got up to about 140 doors, the partners that I was partnered up with the private money guys, we just kind of had a, came to a spot where life happens and we decided to go our separate ways. And um, so we, we started liquidating our, our portfolio and liquidated that in 2016 and um, started kind of doing my own thing in late 2015 again. And uh, so again, press the reset button, had to liquidate my entire portfolio, but what they couldn't take away was the mindset, right? I had the experience now of how to buy an apartment building and how to do some due diligence on it and how to manage it and how to, 
renovate it and do a lot of that kind of stuff. So I, I started flipping houses again and we started flipping about 80 to 100 turnkey houses for the next few years, started a management company and then, you know, slowly accumulated apartment buildings again. And uh, yeah, man, in, in 2017, I remember sitting back on vacation and, you know, getting real pensive and thinking about my net worth and looking at my personal financial statement, my goals and all that stuff and realizing that 90% of my wealth came from my apartments, but it was only about 10% of my time back then. And so I was like, what am I doing? And I just right. totally burned the ships on my residential real estate and I just focused on commercial. And so, you know, fast forward today, as we're talking, it's, you know, November, 2020, and I have 4,256 units right now. 90% of that is multifamily. The other 10% is kind of a, a mix of a lot of self-storage. I have some vacation rentals, three office buildings, and a little bit of retail type stuff too. So that's, that's kind of where we're at, man. So portfolio value around $330 million and that's cool. But what's more exciting is like the way that I buy is, is similar to the residential side of things. We're like, Hey, I'm all in for 65% of the after repair value. And so we only really owe about 215,000, I'm sorry, 215 million on $330 million worth of, uh, of property. So it's, it's a good, good spot to be in. We're, we're in real, it's not all mine, right? I have business partners and stuff, but I get a, a big chunk of that equity. So it's, it's pretty cool. It's giving me the lifestyle that, that is, is what the American dream is all about. Huh? Yeah, exactly. Bringing it, bringing it back around. Well, let's talk about how you kind of buy deals. You, you, you do it a unique way because I think you kind of, you're self-taught in this, in this business. You kind of started with smaller projects and you've just, you've continued that through your larger projects, right? So now when you buy a deal, like mm -hmm. you said, you're looking at, you're looking at, uh, well, tell, you'll explain it to me, I guess, really. But how, tell me how you kind of look at your deals as opposed to the traditional underwriting. Yeah, I mean, you see a lot of traditional syndicators, and I've never taken a class. I've never read a book on syndication yeah. or multifamily investing. I, I've learned from, like, again, self-taught, school of hard knocks. You know, I just kept on messing up on smaller buildings and didn't mess up as I got into the bigger stuff and because I learned my lessons. And so, you, you know, because I'd never learn to develop broker relationships and ever learn how to do, you know, the old school methods of sourcing deals like a lot of uh, traditional syndicators do. I just taken residential strategies and I deployed them in, into multifamily. So driving for dollars, you know, just like there's houses with tall grass and boarded up windows, there's apartment buildings with tall grass and boarded up windows. And then we would, you know, skip trace the owner and reach out to them and say, do you want to sell? We would, you know, you, you can do pull lists of delinquent taxes. You can dial for dollars. Instead of calling for sale by owners, I called for rent by owners. I said, Hey, I'm not interested in renting your apartment. I'm interested in buying the apartment building. Do you have any interest in selling? And I do things like that. You can do direct mail to apartment owners, same way that you can do direct mail to residential owners. And so we've done a lot of those things in order to kind of find, you know, the motivated sellers in commercial real estate. And, and then I got pretty active on social media and I just started telling people about how I'm buying and what I'm buying and how I structure deals and trying to offer personal finance strategies and wealth building ideas and giving people value on social media and hopping on podcasts, doing things like this. And all of a sudden there was like this, this army of people that started sending me deals. Every time I post on social media, they'd be like, Hey Tim, can I sell a deal to you? Can I buy a deal from you? Can I joint venture with you? Can I lend you money? Can I, do you coach, do you mentor? And so it created all these other opportunities that then created more deal flow and more private money lenders because of that. So I think social media is really, really powerful. I love what you're doing on, on the podcast side of things too. And the more value, I know you don't like tangibly get paid for doing this kind of stuff, but the more value you create for people out there, I promise you it comes full circle and it's not, you get what you give. You actually get much more than what you give, which is uh, pretty, pretty incredible, pretty powerful, but as long as you're doing the right things with it, right? With, with a lot of responsible, with a, a lot of power comes a lot of responsibility. Yeah. I haven't seen that for us. I mean, I just do the podcast. Uh, my daughters have been my business and we kind of just wanted to share our journey to success. We're, we're, we're fully committed to this path and we, and we fully expect to, to achieve our dream. So we're kind of just saying, Hey, come along with us while we, while we try to do this. You know, we don't know really right now yeah, if, love it. if it's going to happen or not, but we're just kind of putting ourselves out there saying, Hey, come along and see what happens. Right. So it's yeah. been good. But so you use in, in terms of like finding deals, getting deals, you use a lot of this, that's all that's the single family, you know, classic single family stuff. 
and when you're when you're getting into your bigger deals do those things i guess you're getting a lot of those things through your social media but are you finding that the single family strategies are still feasible at you know like the, the bigger hundred plus type properties yeah i i think or have you so or have you shifted your business back to the broker we'll model no, I, I think a lot of the, uh, what, what you will find is a lot of gurus out there teach you to just work with brokers and only buy units that are 75 units or bigger, but we buy buildings that are 75 units, hundred units or bigger. I, yeah. Maybe it works. I don't, that's not how I built my business. I organically grew my portfolio to a level of 150, 200, 300 doors from a bunch of smaller buildings. And then that allowed me to then go and get a seat at the table negotiate on a 200 unit apartment building, you know, and then I had, you know, 400 units and that allowed me to go and take down a 600 unit portfolio of apartments. And so I, I know that it works that you can go and develop broker relationships. I can tell you that if you don't have any apartments right now, it's going to be very hard to get credibility from brokers to start sending you deals, especially the good deals, the pocket listings that they have. If you don't already have uh, or shown that you can perform on these things. So I don't think that's a good, I don't think it's good advice to tell, especially newer people that are looking to part of, like, you know, level up into commercial real estate that are coming from residential and looking to get into that, that bigger type of property. They're not going to get the respect that you need in order to have broker relationships. I have broker relationships now, but that's because I have 4,000 doors. You know, they know that I'm a real buyer. If you go to somebody and you don't have any doors, you go to a broker and you're like, no, but I, I, I know this guy who does have some money and this guy does have experience and, uh, you know, I'm trying to find deals. They're going to send you a bunch of the garbage. They're, you know, they're, they're going to think you're a bottom feeder. Let me see if I can get this putts to overpay for this D-class apartment building in the hood, you know? Right. And so you're, you're not going to get good deals that way. So I always tell, you know, people who I mentor and coach, I'm like, listen, go and start doing deals. Like the momentum that you create is worth more. Like that's, that's more important than going and waiting out for the perfect deal. Go and buy an eight unit, go buy a 15 unit, go buy a 50 unit, go buy a 25 unit. Just start getting some deals under your belt. Cause if you can't raise money on 25 units, you're not gonna be able to raise money on 250. You know, if you can't, if you can't manage a 15 unit apartment building, how the hell are you gonna manage a 150 unit apartment building? You know, so get the experience, you know, like, like do some small deals, raise some money, get some wins under your belt, you know, build up a team, organically grow, organically learn. And, uh, and as you experience some of the success and people see you start taking down these deals, then you're going to uh, get some respect in your community with the commercial brokers. And that's when they start bringing you the hundred unit. And all of a sudden you double your portfolio in a single deal, or they bring you a 300 unit portfolio and boom, you double, triple your portfolio because you took down that one. So I think it's more important to build your balance sheet than it is to wait out for the perfect deal. I think it's more important to build the balance sheet and create momentum than it is to wait out for the perfect deal. Huh? Yeah. That's interesting to me because I'm, I, I'm sort of following the other path. So I can do smaller deals right now, but I've been passing on a lot of the smaller deals just because I've, I'm waiting for that, that big, that, you know, kind of that big hit. So uh, that's an interesting, that's You're an interesting concept. You're not going to see though. those deals. You're not going to see yeah. those deals unless you're already doing deals. It just doesn't happen. I can, I can assure you that that's, that's the case, right? Or they're going to see, yeah. hey, who, who's, who's going to be the money guy behind you? And they're going to move you out of the way and, and then go try to talk to whoever, whoever you're partnering up with. So it's more important. And, and believe me, you don't want to stay in small apartment buildings. And I think this, this goes back to your original question is like all those residential strategies work for buildings under 100 units. When you get into like the bigger doors, you're working with more maybe, maybe, you know, larger groups, but there's also a lot of smart entrepreneurs who made money in another business that thought they could just park money in apartment buildings. And, and then they don't know what the hell they're doing. And then they get kicked in the teeth and then they lose their butt on these things. So there's motivated sellers in all different sizes of buildings. But again, going back to building the momentum and building your balance sheet, that's more important than waiting out for the perfect deal because you're not going to be able to grow your portfolio fast enough and you're going to get dis you know, disenchanted. You're going to be frustrated. It, it really, if you're, yeah, if you're waiting an entire year to do a deal, like you can do a, a 10, 15 unit apartment building deal and still be looking for your other stuff. And again, you don't want to stay in it forever, but build up the balance sheet, get up to 100, 200 doors 
And then you, you can get into the bigger apartment buildings. You start selling off your smaller things. That's, that's one of the things that I've been doing right now is I'm selling off everything under 50 units right now. And it, it played its part, got me to where I needed to be. But people are always waiting for the perfect you know, oyster with, with the pearl inside of it. And they're only looking for that one. And the reality is like the odds of you finding that one are very minimal. First of all, I'm looking like you're, you're competing with guys like me all the time. And if, if um, somebody with no experience in multifamily goes to a broker that's listing an oyster with a pearl inside of it type of, type of a deal, and then I come in, who do you think they're going to like just give more attention to? Somebody with a you know, third of a billion dollar portfolio or somebody who doesn't own any property? So you, you got to get the momentum going, man. You got to build up yeah. the balance sheet. Like that's the most important thing that you could be doing right now and, and, and not just looking for the grand slam home run deals. Baseball games are won by base hits, consistent base hits over and over and over again. It's not about this deal. It's about the next 10 deals that come from you doing this deal. It's about the next hundred deals that you can do from doing this deal. So it's, you got to have more of a long-term mentality. You got to have more of an abundance mentality and understand that, you know, there's certain things you got to do in order to set yourself up for future growth and future success. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate that perspective. So Let's talk a little bit. You and I both kind of, you, your, your past is a little different than mine, but you, we both kind of come from the single family realm, I guess, and are transitioning, I'm transitioning, you've transitioned into multifamily. What do you think? I know what, I know what was kind of holding me back. It took me a while to kind of convince myself this is possible for myself to do. What do you think most of your single family guys that are, that are, that are active in single family are kind of telling themselves that's preventing them from going into multifamily? What's holding them back, do you think? I mean, it's always, we are always our own bottleneck. You know, it's yeah, always self-limiting beliefs. The, yeah. the only people that can, the, the only individual who can, you know, stop you from achieving greatness is yourself, right? Like you're the only one who can limit your own greatness. So it's always comes back to your own mindset. A lot of people are creating excuses in their heads saying, Hey, I need to have this business totally on autopilot before I need to go, before I can go into multifamily or I need to stockpile X number of dollars before I can then go and invest into multifamily. The reality is I was flipping houses, but I wasn't that good at it. And, and I didn't have that good of a business and it wasn't on autopilot. And I realized that, and, and I realized it, it wasn't the long-term play for me either. You know, I, I see a lot of people who, Hey, here's my goal, but they're not putting themselves on a path to get to that goal. And all of a sudden they start flipping houses. If your long-term goal is to flip houses, and then you should flip houses. If your long-term goal is not to flip houses and it's to own commercial real estate, then what are you wasting your time on flipping houses? Like what? Like the, the, the fastest uh, way to get from point A to point B is a straight line, not, not taking the scenic route or, or you know, taking some, some off-road path. It's a straight line. So if your goal is to go and build a portfolio of apartments, that's what you should be spending your time on. I just feel like life's too short to be spending your time on anything that's not uh, pushing you towards your long-term goal. So I think that's a big deal. I think the, the misconception that you have to be sitting on a ton of your own cash is a big deal for people to get past. I mean, I own $330 million of real estate. I've only personally invested $125,000 ever in all my, in all my properties. Yeah. So obviously you don't need your own money. I do use my own credit because I, I'm the one with, I'm the managing member of all my property. So I do use my own credit. I am the one who sponsors it, but you don't have to use your own credit. You can find a guy, you know, like me or like Corey or somebody who has a balance sheet that has good credit, that has the, the liquidity and the net worth and the experience of owning and managing that many units and doors. And um, they can sponsor the loan, co-sign on it for you. So you don't need your own credit. You don't need your own money, you know, and, and a lot of times you don't even need experience because you can bring in a third party management company that has the experience in order to help out with that. So it's a team sport. It's not like single family where, and, and, and I, I think right. this goes back to one of the big things is like, you think that you need to do everything, you know, in multifamily because you do have to do everything in single family In single family. I did all the work. I found the deals. I oversaw the contractors. I raised the private money. I made payments. I did bookkeeping. I did the sales, the disposition side. Like I did everything. And it's very hard for single family investors to give that up because they're used to doing everything. Cause you're, you're only talking about profits that are, I don't know, 
twenty, thirty thousand dollars a house, and it's hard to build up a team of A players in order to carve up. You know, if you want to bring in a team of A players, you got four A players on your team, and you're carving up twenty grand. Like five thousand dollars isn't that exciting for an A player. But if you go and buy an apartment building and it's a five million dollar deal, and you're into it for three and a half million dollars, and there's one point five million that now you can carve up amongst four people, all of a sudden that gets more exciting. You know, it's $300,000 per person in net worth and equity from doing a single deal. And so, and it makes your life easier and your life more fun because you can focus on the stuff you're good at and you can partner up with somebody who can do the stuff that you're not good at, you know, or likes doing that better than, than how you like doing it. So it's, it, it creates a better lifestyle, makes you happier, builds more wealth, and it gets you to your long-term goal faster by doing it that way. So again, it's always our, our own self-limiting beliefs. And I think until you get, you're aware of those things and you get educated on the other ways to get around that, that's, that's the biggest hurdle that I've seen in a lot of the residential investors that are trying to scale up into commercial. Yeah, for me, my, my business has always been about earning income. I've always wanted that, that mailbox money, you know. And I, well, I originally thought, yeah, I, since I was a kid, I've always driven by apartment buildings and just thought to myself, if I could just own one of those, if I could just own one of those, you know, I, all the time. And I always thought that hedge funds and REITs and, you know, pension funds, those are the only guys that own those places. I didn't know guys like me could do it, you know, at all. And then I heard Corey's story. So that was kind of the one thing that I needed was just to know that it was possible. And then the second, the second obstacle was, like you said, overcoming your own sort of brain, right? And I had to start to believe that it was possible for me that I could have that too, right? So I knew Corey was doing it. I knew you were doing it, but, but can Sean do it really? So I had to convince myself that I could do it. And then once I got to that place, mm -hmm. you know, multifamily is in terms of creating income is that's just the champion. I mean, that's the best, the best asset class in my opinion that you can find, you know, it's just, it's just that mailbox money all the time. And it's like you said, the scale is much greater, you know, than single family. You know, you, in your single family business, you're trying to buy this income and you're doing it one door at a time, you know, and it's like 300 bucks a month just is not, it's like, man, I'm, I'm killing myself to buy these, you know, single family units and make 300 bucks on a rental property. I could flip this thing and make 30 grand, you know, so it's like every time mm -hmm. you buy something, you're wanting to, to sell it, not keep it, you know, it's the opposite in multifamily. So I, a lot of that's, a lot of that is just kind of shifting your, your thinking, I think, from where you're at in your single family business to convince yourself, hey, I can do this. And then for me, it was a matter of, you know, mm -hmm. finding the information, learning the process, learning the, the, the business, and which I'm still doing every day. You know, every day I'm learning new things. Like I just learned five, five different things from you just in our conversation. So it's constantly doing those things, but it's been, it's been good. So let's talk a little bit about how you kind of syndicate your deals. So do you, you, what, how do you like to structure your, your deals and, and, and what sort of the ideal setup for you and, and, and your syndications now in your business and the larger business, larger properties? Yeah, I, I, I syndicate a little bit differently than traditional syndicators. I mean, Corey does it differently as well. My entire model is essentially the Burr model. They buy, renovate, rent, refinance. So I use that in residential and I just started doing it in commercial. I realized I wanted the mailbox money. I wanted the long-term residual. I wanted long-term wealth. And the best way of doing that is not by selling apartment buildings, by refinancing and holding them, letting them cash flow. Right. You know, letting uh, the cash flow come in, pay down your principal, let the property appreciate over time. And then eventually you got a lot of equity built up into your property. And so my model, like in order to do that, I need to be able to buy it, renovate it, and be all in to one of my properties for around 65 to 70 cents on the dollar. That allows me to then go and refinance with a 70 or 75% LTV loan and pay back my short-term bridge loan, my, my passive investors, and then own the property with only bank money in play, right? So like all the chips are off the table and now it's just house money in play. And it's long-term debt, fixed interest rates, long amortization schedules, non-recourse loans, and that's where you want to be as you increase your net worth, you want to increase kind of that safety net, I guess that goes with it and reduce that liability. So that's always been my model because I can do that. I can buy something that's distressed. It's physically distressed, managerially distressed, and then I can improve it by putting sweat equity into it. I can, I can create appreciation versus speculating on it. And I can do it over a much shorter amount of time. So I can stabilize 
pretty much any building within 12 to 24 months. And that allows me to then go <clears throat> and have a very predictable cost of private money. So if I can go get a bridge loan, let's call it, all right, let's, let's say I got a deal for, I don't know, 10 million. It's going to be worth $10 million once it's stabilized. If I need to be all in for 65% of the stabilized value, that means I'm all in for six and a half million dollars. On that six and a half million between purchase price and renovation costs, the bank's going to give me around 80% of it. So let's say the bank gives me $5 million. That means I have to go and raise 1.5 million from my private money lenders. When I go and raise 1.5 million, their money's only to be in for 24 months because I'll be able to refinance and uh, cash them out when I get a new loan at 70% LTV. So because I know, even if the property's not performing, because I know that I can have them, the property stabilized and refinanced in 12 to 24 months, I just need to essentially create like an interest reserve to make sure I can pay my investors in the first 12 months. I found that investors really want predictable passive income and they want equity upside. And so that's what, that's the kind of the, the hybrid that I've created for my investors. And so I pay my investors um, a fixed return while their money's invested. And then when we refinance, they get all their money back. And when they get all their money back, they still maintain uh, a small percentage of equity in the deal forever. So let's say the investor pool might, might still keep 20 or 25% ownership in the deal forever. So all their money's off the table, but they still get their percentage of refinance proceeds of cash flows, of depreciation, of future sales proceeds. And so it allows them to have more velocity on their money because then they can go into a second deal, a third deal, a fifth deal with me. And in a traditional syndication, their money's stuck for five to 10 years. With right. me, they can get the three deals in five years. You know, And so it, it seems like it might be less equity on the surface, but if you think about it, they're getting 25% of each deal and they're in three deals, so they're getting 75% of the equity versus one deal where the money's stuck there. It only pays if the property's performing. It doesn't pay if the property's not performing. And it takes five years to get their money back from that one deal. And, and you're not diversified across three deals. You're not earning a fixed return across why your money's invested. And typically they're buying this at a retail, the traditional syndicators are paying a retail price and uh, they're banking on speculative appreciation over the next five to 10 years. And their idea to get the investors their money back is to sell the property. So now the investor just has a high paying job also. They're not building real long-term wealth. So I, I just, I think my model works a little bit better for what my investors are looking for. And, and, and it works better for us too. There's obviously more work on it because we're doing heavier value adds than just buying something that's stabilized and we just let it cash flow. You know, I think there's, I mean, there's my syndication works better for value add plays. Traditional syndication works better for stabilized projects. My, my dilemma with stabilized projects is if it's stabilized and it's renovated and it's cash flowing and it's 90% occupancy and it's at market rate rents, why would that seller ever sell at a discount? You know, very unlikely for them to sell at a discount, uh, a stabilized property. So that means you're going to be paying a retail price, which is just, it's against everything I believe in from an investment standpoint. I always believe in buying at a wholesale price and then creating appreciation versus speculating on it. So I'm looking for those kinds of plays. I will say that since COVID hit, I'm kind of, I'm not taking on as heavy of value adds and I'm more in that, you know, 80 to 90, 80 to 90% occupancy with much or significantly below market rents. So it hasn't been updated in 40 years. It needs, you know, cosmetic improvements, some physical improvements, better management, some scale in what we can bring to the table from a management perspective and asset management perspective. And that's kind of more like what we're leaning towards right now. It's kind of like that, that middle grade stabilized, but still value added play. Yeah, that's interesting. That's there, there's a lot to unpack there, but it sounds like your investors are able to get a little bit more velocity with their cash putting it in one deal, getting it back out in the next 12, 24 months, they can go back into another deal. It also, it also affords you the capacity to get some velocity on your transactions as well, right? So you can yeah. get, get that stabilized with- Recycle 50 million bucks every right. 18 months. Look at how many deals I can get into, you know, versus having that money sit for the next five, six, seven years, you're gonna keep on raising more and more and more money. So it allows me to grow faster. It allows the investors to grow faster. And, and it offers more almost like liquidity on their money, where if, if life does happen 
and they, they don't want to roll it forward. They don't have to wait five to seven years. They can get it back in two years, you know? But even then they still retain that, that portion of their cash flow on the new, on the deal that they've already invested in. So that, that mailbox money yep. is kind of hitting them all the time. That depreciation is kind of hitting them every year. So there's benefits to, mm -hmm. once they're in the deal, there's benefits long-term too. So I could see how that would be really appealing so. for an investor to be into for sure. Well, how do you, kind of, so I guess you've just explained, I was going to ask you about paying off those loans. So how do you get to a place where you've got a property that you're kind of free and clear on? Is that, is that always your goal is to, is to, I guess your first goal is to buy it, stabilize it, refinance it, cash out everybody, and then continue to grow that, that, that property with rent increases organically. And then your, I guess your long-term goal is to eventually pay off the debt and then just have that property debt-free. Is that kind of the, the long-term trajectory? Yeah, I mean, I don't mind debt. I've become a good steward of capital because I was such a yeah. bad steward of capital. I've learned a lot of lessons on that. And, and now I'm, I respect money very much so. And I know that I put money into assets and I do not put money into liabilities, right? And I, I understand these, these basic principles. And, uh, and because I'm, I'm now a good steward of capital, I'm not afraid of debt, especially non-recourse debt on multifamily. My goal right now is I get decently, when I refinance, I try to get, you know, the most, the highest LTV that I possibly can, right? I'm 35 years old. I got a lot of time left to pay these things off and I'm in growth mode. So I'm trying to get as much money off, off the table when I refinance as I possibly can, because it pays back the investors, takes non-taxable refinance proceeds off the table and builds my cash reserves personally. So if I can do more of that right now, that allows me, again, a little bit more velocity in the growth of my portfolio. It, I, it probably won't always be my, I know it won't always be my, my model. I know that you know, once I get up to a, a couple billion dollars in assets, my goal is going to be now to start pounding down some principal. I don't think I'll ever pay them off in full, but I think I'll always have, I think I'll always have some sort of debt, but probably much lower LTV. You know, 50% LTV is probably where I'll always be, but I, I don't think I'll ever pay them off because I'll, I mean, depends on where interest rates are, depends on what lending terms and loan terms, but if loan terms are always like this, where I can get fixed interest rate, 50%, 60% loan to value with, with interest rates that are sub five, you know, and long amortization schedules, long terms and uh, non-recourse loans, at, again, at a low LTV, like, I don't, I don't think there's any problem with having debt on the property. Cause I know that I could turn around and pay it off if I wanted to, I could sell it. I could refinance it very quickly, very easily with a different lender if I needed to. And so uh, I don't mind having debt on my properties. I think I'll have a different kind of debt in the future, but if, 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 as long as I'm growing, I'll always have debt on my properties. Maybe in the future, I'll pay them all off. I don't know. For, for me, I can just go and refinance. This is Hudson, by the way. Hi, buddy. <laughs> How are you doing? Yeah. Hey, so, so for me, I can always just, you know, refinance the property. If, even if I paid it off, I mean, I mean, refi proceeds are tax-free. And it allows yeah. me and the investors to take some cash off the table and it's tax-free because you got to pay it back. But at the same time, it's not us paying it back. It's our tenants paying it back. And they're not only right. paying it back, but there's still an excess cash flow on top of that. So it allows me to then go and take some money off the table and utilize that to go buy more assets, utilize that. I could, I could buy liabilities with it if I wanted to at that point, because it's backed by an asset that's paying for, for the debt. And it's such a low LTV, it doesn't really adversely affect me at all. So I don't know, maybe I will, but right now I put 10 year to 15 year terms. I do a 30 year amortization schedule. And for somebody who wants to pay it off sooner and says, hey, I want a 20 year AM or 25 year AM, you could do that, but you could still pay off your property in 22 years with a 30 year amortization, right? Like you just make one extra payment or two extra payments a year and you can still pay it off in 20 years if you wanted to. What I don't like about a 20 year amortization is that you got a big lump, uh, a big nut to cover every single month, right? And so uh, if the market does shift or COVID does happen and occupancy or collections drop or just some, some spooks in the, in the economy occur, you don't want to have that big nut. You got to pay every single month. So right. I would rather make additional principal payments when the market's good and pay it down faster. But when the market's you know, a little bit shaky, then I, I got a, a minimal monthly payment that I just need, I know I need to cover. Good to go. I only need to have 60% occupancy 
at my properties once they're stabilized. And, and I can cover all my pro operating expenses and my debt service, maybe 65%. So yeah. I know that in my head and, uh, and I feel good about that knowing like, that's why I put a 30 year amp, but I could still pay it off sooner if I felt like it or refinance it sooner if I felt like it. Yeah. The goal is really what I'm hearing you say is the goal is, is not to have properties that are just free and clear. The goal is to take your operating capital, your, your equity capital, reinvest that as frequently as you can, secure the property with debt that, that isn't overburdening your cash flow every month. And then just keep repeating that process and keep that going. And that, you know, having that debt in place is not, it's not something that's scary or bad. It's, it's actually beneficial to you and it allows you to continue to grow your portfolio. And a lot of people, the right they way, think of, right? it's like any weapon. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people it's think like of debt weapon. as some sort of evil good thing. Or for evil. Right. Yeah. 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 A lot of people think of debt as some it sort just, of like bad thing. It depends on thing. how you're using it. Yeah, exactly. Most people look at it. Most, most people use it for credit cards and to buy a bunch of garbage on right. Amazon and to go, buy a bunch of, you know, fancy clothes with, with, you know, fancy brand names and all this other stupid stuff and to buy stupid cars and, and all these depreciating liabilities, you know, they're not buying assets with it. If they understood how to buy assets with debt, Hey, you can, you can build a lot of wealth. I've, I've, I've done it. And again, there, there's different strokes for different folks and some people may want to own a portfolio free and clear and they can absolutely do that for me and my ambitions and my long-term goals. I'm just more of a growth type mindset and yeah. I want to see how big I can, uh, how big I can build it. Yeah. Your target right now is a couple billion. I think you said. Yeah. My, my short term's a billion dollars in, in assets. I'm at three, three thirty right now. I'm, I'm actually selling a big chunk of mine. I, I might actually drop down to around 150 million in assets. I think I'm going to sell uh -huh. about almost, 200 million in assets over the next six months here. It's more, again, like I was telling at the beginning, it's more like the, the beginner stuff. It's more like the C class, C plus yeah. type properties that, that I still have. Some of my smaller buildings that, that I have and even, even some of my B class type stuff that, that they're in like tertiary markets. And I'm looking to take that money. I'm going to pay back my investors. They're going to get a boatload of cash back, a boatload of return. I'm going to get a bunch of money uh, of my own back. My partner's going to get a bunch of money of his back. And then we're going to roll into more primary type markets in more kind of B plus A minus kind of areas and just get a little bit nicer of a class of asset. And, um, yeah. and you know, I mean, Hey, interest rates are so low cap rates are low. That means values are high. There's a lot of money coming in from New York and California that's buying into the Southeast, which is where a lot of my property is right now. And they're paying good dollar amounts, you know? Yeah. And so if I can sell my portfolio right now, I know that I can source deals no problem because of the education side and the social media side and my broker relationships now and the, and the reputation I have in the marketplace. And so I'm not concerned about finding new deals. I think, I think as, as long as you know what your long-term goal is, like I'm taking essentially one step back in order to make three, four, five step, five leaps forward in my business. So my kind of midterm goal, yeah, my, my kind of two to three year goal is hit a billion dollars in assets. I think I can do that in the next 24 to 36 months. I'm really confident that I could. And then, yeah. and then I don't know where I want to go from there. I, I, I really don't do goals longer than about three to five years out anymore just because things change so rapidly, you know? Yeah. And, and so I know that that's my short-term goal. I think after that is going to be a billion dollar fund and create my own investment fund. And then, and then that could probably parlay in about $5 billion of assets. And who knows? I don't know. I also have a kid's books out, you know, I might, yeah. I might just say, Hey, that's good. I'm yeah. where I want to be, you know? multiple nine figure net worth. And uh, let me just go and focus on my kids' books or more of a, a give back and impact type piece, or I don't know, go save the whales or save rainforest or something. I don't, I don't know what I'll do. Yeah, exactly. That's good. That's awesome. Well, I guess I always ask everybody, you, you, you're clearly living the American dream, right? So I always ask everybody, you know, kind of what is, what is your American dream? How do you define it? What are you, what are you doing with it, your American dream? And then kind of what is it that you're doing to sort of take it to the next level? That's a great question, man. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I mean, here's the thing. I see a lot of people and they're like, dude, I love what you're doing and you're living the life and all that. And that's, that's cool. And I've designed a life and I've been very intentional about the life that I live and, you know, and, and the things that I do and where I spend my time and, and a lot of those things. And, but, but I, I don't like it when people like compare themselves to me. Right. And I don't like it when people compare themselves to other people. I don't think it's fair. You don't know the advantages or disadvantages that anybody was raised with. You don't know what their story was. You don't know how long they've been working 
you know, kind of under the surface in order to create and become that, that overnight success story. You know what I mean? And so I don't, I don't like it when people compare themselves to somebody else in that regard. I try to compare myself to me and I compare myself. Where was I a year ago to where I am today? Where will I be a year from now from where I am today? And as long as that needle keeps on moving forward, that to me is success, right? That to me is, is pursuing my dreams. You know, for me, the American dream is entrepreneurship. I love it. I think everybody should be an entrepreneur. I don't think everybody's meant to be an entrepreneur. I think everybody could be an entrepreneur. I think in order to be one of these multiple hundreds of millions of dollars net worth or billionaires, I think that's a certain breed of a right. person who, who was just kind of born maybe genetic with it. But I don't think everybody is born to be that kind of entrepreneur, but I think everybody is born to be, you could, you could absolutely build a seven or eight figure net worth. Anybody is, is, is what I truly believe. And so go and buy real estate, go and start a business, go in, I don't know, join an MLM. I don't, I don't care what you end up doing, but do something entrepreneurial, sell, Lemonade, sell, uh, I, I, doesn't, there's a billion different ways to make so much money and just go and do something where you, you take control over your value, right? And you bring value to society and let society dictate, you know, how much money that, that it should be paying you. I think that's um, a pretty powerful concept of like having a hundred percent ownership and a hundred percent accountability over your life. That to me is more of the American dream. And I mean, Hey, being born in the United States, like we've had a leg up, we've got an advantage for sure over other countries. And, you know, if I had a, a lottery ball that said, Hey, here's Tim Brotts born to these parents in this state, in this country, in this time frame, And uh, there were seven and a half billion lottery balls that you could put back in. Like I, I wouldn't put my ball back in. I think I know that I've, I've, I've lucked out, right. The way that I've been born and sort of my parents and the belief systems and everything that, that and opportunities that I've, I've had. But being in America, like I know, I know white males who live paycheck to paycheck and are complete deadbeats and don't contribute at all to society. And I know minorities and women and immigrants that have come to the United States and gone straight to the top, more successful, far more successful than me, you know, and have overcome bigger adversities and, and didn't let other things dictate who they were or, or set them in some sort of, I don't know, parameter of some sort and dictate what they could accomplish or not accomplish. Like they, there were no limitations. The only limitation was their own mindset and they went straight to the top because of it. And so I think that's truly the American dream is just overcoming adversity and building up a lifestyle of, of whatever you want. And I think defining what you want is something that a lot of people don't do and that they need to do. They need to figure out, Hey, what do you actually want? And, and then once you know the destination, then you can create the roadmap in order to get there, you know, but unless you have that destination in place, then you're just kind of, you know, floating on the wind somewhere. So yeah. uh, make sure you know what you want and then, and then just pursue it. Yeah. I, I met a guy the other day. I'll just tell a quick story, but I met a guy the other day. He moved here from India when he was 10 years old, he saw a Western movie and he said, I want to go there, you know, and he, he, he made a commitment to do that. So when he got older, he moved it, moved to the United States and he wanted to live in the United States. He loves it here. And every two years he has to renew his work visa. So he has to have a stable job and all these other things. But every two years he, he runs the risk of getting thrown out of the country. And he's been here for 17 years renewing that visa. And he finally was awarded a green card. So the green card gives him another five year period, then he can become a citizen. But he's been building a life in a country that is completely temporary. Every two years he may have to leave. But he wants to be here so badly that he's now a pharmacist and he's, he's, very, he's a successful guy. And he's been just committing mm -hmm. to, to being successful in this country, even, even in spite of those challenges. And now he's, now he's looking at getting into real estate and, 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 and you know, sort of leveling up his, his dream that he's going through. So I thought his story, I'm going to try and get him on the podcast, but I thought his story was amazing. It's perfect American dream. And since you mentioned those immigrants, That'd I want fantastic. Yeah, I thought I would mention that story, but it's, I, I listened to him his story really quickly. And I was like, that's great. You know, that's great. Well, the hardest working people that I've met and are typically immigrants. They're typically people who were born in another country and then came to the United States and they go straight to the top. You know why? Cause they have something to compare it to because yeah. I mean, like, like we being born here, we're, we're so, it, it's just, 
like, I don't, we've never had to walk two miles in one direction in order to get fresh water. We've never had to eat, I don't know, mud pies. We've never had to worry about our, our uh, religious beliefs being suppressed. We've never had to worry about, like, that's never even been a concern of ours. And so because we, we've been so spoiled being born here, we don't have anything to compare it to, you know? And so that's why people just kind of live this life of mediocrity of, you know, not, not pushing the limits too much. And at the same time, not feeling any real pain, right? They're just kind of in this comfort zone and they never really accomplished anything. And they live their life that way versus people who have really had to overcome adversities and they have to, I don't know, scrape up money in order to get a flight to come to the United States and then overcome these, you know, the risk of being sent back every two years. Like, let me make sure that I'm overcoming and I'm contributing to society and I'm paying my taxes and I'm doing things that for the betterment of, of the community. And it's like, dude, what if everybody had that mindset? You know, like, like that's what made America so great early on is because everybody was an immigrant. Everybody was coming here because it was yeah. such a land of opportunity. And now it's just, it's become... Uh, spoil for a lot of people. And, uh, you know, I, I've, I've been fortunate enough to meet a lot of amazing immigrants and a lot of amazing people who have contributed to society and contributed to my life. And, and so it, I like to think I'm, I'm aware of enough sort of like respect what they've had to come through. And I have no idea really what they've, what they've had to been, yeah. what they've had to go through, but enough so where I'm not going to take my opportunity and what I've been, you know, the cards that I've been dealt and uh, misplay them. Right. And I'm going to make right. sure that I do as much as I possibly can and impact as much as I possibly can and inspire as much as I possibly can. Because again, when, when you have great opportunity, great ability, I think you have great responsibility to do the right thing and, and make sure you pay it forward. So yeah, man, I think with, with, with that, it's a good closing thought. Yeah, exactly. It's perfect. Exactly. Well, Tim, uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show, man. This has been awesome. You know, you have, I guess you have mastermind going on. You've got all kinds of activities happening. If someone wanted to get in touch with you, kind of what's the best path for them? Do you have a website they can go to or something? Yeah, I, I shoot me a message on Facebook, Instagram. You know, um, I'm sure you'll, you'll tag my, my social media handles when you release yeah. this. So shoot me a message there. Follow me, friend me up on, on Facebook and Instagram. I'm very active on those. I have a YouTube channel, all that stuff, but just just friend me up on, on Facebook or Instagram and shoot me a message. You know, I answer my own messages. If you got a question, if there's something that I can help you out with, make a make connection for you. Don't hesitate to reach out. And, and then my website's legacywealthholdings.com, legacywealthholdings.com. And I'm always trying to just, you know, give value and inspire and share how we're doing deals and how we structure deals and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, if you guys have any, any questions, don't hesitate to reach out. And Sean, I appreciate you having me, man. This has been awesome. And Yes, a lot of really, really good questions. And I appreciate all the value that you're creating out there too, man. Yeah, thanks, Tim. I appreciate that. It means a lot coming from you. So I, uh, thanks again for coming on the show. And hopefully we can have you back on and talk about some other things, you know, down the road, okay? Sounds great, man. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Next Level American Dream. If you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, want to contact the team directly, or are interested in passively investing and being a part of our deal room, head over to our website at www.thompsonmultifamilygroup.com. Before you go, please leave a review. Your comments help us create more episodes for you to enjoy.